Hi everyone, welcome back to day three of our 10 days, 10 Mahler symphonies projects here at Attention to Detail. Uh, I'll give you a little look behind the virtual curtain here, as it were. I'm actually recording this, I have to admit, I'm recording this very, very late on day two to get a head start on day three. We're burning the candle at both ends here because we've got such a massive piece to review today and I want to stick to this schedule that we've set of of 10 days 10 symphonies I actually think that uh, we may sneak one or two episodes in in the interim to talk about some other non breakdown elements of Mahler with with some guests and things like that but for the time being we're, we're plugging along with a massive massive symphony uh, today the third symphony and Man, it's it's the gauntlet here when you're trying to review these symphonies and summarize them into uh, a digestible, understandable chunk of uh, a breakdown that that everyone can can really appreciate and and dig into these pieces. And the reason why it's such a challenge is because it's like you hit the reset button every time you start with one of these new works because it's entirely new. It's an entirely new world, it's an entirely new set of philosophical and musical questions that we're trying to answer, but we'll trudge along and, and do it, and that only makes it, it more exciting and each of these pieces so fantastic to listen to, examine, uh, really ex look at deeply, and so that's what we'll, uh, we'll be doing, continuing here with the Third Symphony. This was a piece that was written in 1895 and 96, the year after the, the year and two years after the resurrection. He wrote the second through sixth movements. This is a six-movement symphony. He wrote the second through sixth uh, in 1895, and then he wrote the first in 1896. On this half, we're going to split it again into two episodes because this, is, this piece is over uh, an hour and 40 minutes long. There's just no way to review it in, in one single episode. I think it's Mahler's longest symphony. Um, but we'll do the first movement by itself on this portion because it's such a massive movement, kind of like the last movement of the second. And then we'll do the other ones uh, that will come to you later in the day. But the program for... This is a very programmatic symphony. The program underwent several iterations. We're, we won't review all of the many stages it took. We'll focus on the final one, the, the stage that it's currently in. Um, but it's important to know that Mahler also workshopped various titles for this symphony that eventually got scrapped. As we've mentioned before, the first symphony had this title Titan, which has loosely remained. The first movement of the second symphony had this title Totenfire, which originally that was supposed to be a tone poem. He scrapped a lot of the titles that he originally came up with, but some of the titles he was thinking about for this uh, symphony included The Happy Life or My Happy Life. Another thought was to call it A Midsummer Night's Dream after Shakespeare. At one point he told toyed with the idea of calling it My Happy Science, which is an allusion to uh, the book by Friedrich Nietzsche, who we'll talk about in a second. 
Midsummer Night's Dream is an interesting title to consider in the concept of in the uh, context of this piece. Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, is a play that has all of this comedic triviality that leads to a certain level of of profundity through the kind of triviality of a lot of the the actions and of the characters and and the setting itself. And so that's something to keep in the back of our mind just as to what Mahler may have been thinking about when conceiving this this symphony. We'll certainly get back to the idea of Nietzsche in a second. But the titles of the movements that he's settled on without any title for the actual symphony are Pan Awakes, Summer Marches In. That's the first movement that we'll talk about on, on this portion. And then several movements called What the Flowers in the Meadow Tell Me, what the animals in the forest tell me, what mankind tells me, what the angels tell me, what love tells me. The tense of the word tell and tells is actually going to be important as well, so we'll, we'll keep that in mind. The fourth and sixth movements are somehow what mankind and love tells me versus what everything else tell me, but we'll, we'll set that aside for a sec. These... These six mo- movements that make up the, the program of this symphony represent something of a, of a hierarchy. And it's sort of a hierarchy of life, but also a, a hierarchy in a sort of cosmological sense of the way the world is organized. Maybe something more philosophical about the way the world is organized, some sort of differing levels of enlightenment or uh, attainment that one can achieve over the course of life. We should keep that idea of a hierarchy in the back of our mind as we explore this piece. Um, And in Mahler's own words, he talked about this kind of cosmological tiering system or hierarchy. He said that about this piece, that we want to reach the, the zenith, which is represented by the the last movement, the highest level from which to view the world. And so, and he took this idea of, he was really examining in this symphony, he decided to do away with some of the other questions that we were thinking about in the previous symphonies of, of death, uh, kind of personal questions of, and ontological questions, uh, is that what is this life and and, uh, all these kind of things. And he's dealing more with a constructing a cosmological worldview in this third symphony. So it poses all of these new interesting questions. Schopenhauer had an idea of the uh, kind of a hierarchy of beings from from animals to to mankind and, and so on. And I think Mahler certainly knew the philosophy of Schopenhauer, but the philosophy, the, the kind of cosmological worldview that this symphony is most closely tied to in the form of both text that Mahler uses in the fourth movement and also in a general program and uh, in, in the way that it tries to answer certain questions is the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. And so not being a philosopher myself, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, my, my father is a philosophy professor. This is not a philosophy podcast, and so I'm really going to try to keep it bare bones and not say anything too, uh, too controversial or overstepping here, but it's important that we review a little bit of the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche as it relates to 
this particular third symphony of Mahler, there's several things in Nietzsche that that are really related to what we hear in the symphony. One of Nietzsche's early works, The Birth of Tragedy, is about how Greek tragedy is really one of the, uh, it's the pinnacle of, of artistic creation from antiquity. And he mentions there's this notion of the Dionysian and the Apollonian and the gods Dionysus and Pan, the, the Greek god of nature, of rustic music, all these the, um, natural world elements are both very present in this work, The Birth of Tragedy, and these will be central characters in Mahler's first movement of this piece. Then in later works from Nietzsche, like also Sprach Zarathustra, there's the idea of the Ubermensch that many people have, associate with Nietzsche, the kind of like Superman, the, the, what you're trying to attain living an enlightened life, um, and the idea of eternal recurrence that that events in, in the world are somehow cyclic and that the Ubermensch would, will live their life over and over again in this kind of circle um, where they have no regrets because they live the ultimate uh, fulfilled, enlightened life. And so it's it, these, these ideas of kind of self-mastery, enlightenment, and joy through self-overcoming that permeate some of the works of Nietzsche. Interestingly, uh, Nietzsche also has this notion that he mentions at one point that stages of enlightenment take the form of a camel to a lion to a child, that all of this language, trust me, I, I've spent the last several hours going down many rabbit holes trying to decipher all of this, but, but the, the key thing to take away from this is that the child state is the ultimate uh, state of enlightenment that that you can can kind of achieve in this this really uh, obscure philosophy of Nietzsche's here, and this will be really important because I want to mention that Mahler originally intended for there to be a seventh movement of um, this symphony, either titled "What the Child Tells Me" or "Das Himmlische Leben," the heavenly life. He actually decided this was such a substantial and important topic that he dedicated. He cut that movement from the end of the third symphony and made it an entire symphony of its own, the fourth. And so the fourth is actually really like the seventh movement of this third. But that we will get to. We've mentioned already how Mahler's symphonies connect to each other very closely, and that's certainly the case with the third and the fourths. Um, but... Before we, we jump ahead, obviously, to the fourth, um, there's this sense, so we have this sense of hierarchy in, these, in this symphony of Mahler, of the third symphony, and the, the idea is that we're going to listen to these movements and ascend the steps of the ladder of enlightenment or self-mastery or whatever that may be. Um, Mahler, interestingly, had a... It, again, like the second symphony where he infused his own thought into uh, what is a predominantly Christian narrative of, of a resurrection, Mahler seems to agree and disagree with Nietzsche on some key aspects of Nietzsche's philosophy. He does seem to agree that this, this child state certainly is, is the ultimate 
kind of state of enlightenment. But Nietzsche very famously was um, anti-God, anti he said that God is dead, and um, he was also in, in the gay science. Nietzsche mentions that uh, he's both godless and anti-metaphysical, and neither of those things hold true for Mahler. In fact, there are several quotes from Mahler where he was connecting the, the last movement, which is called What Love Tells Me, to essentially being what God tells me. God and love are kind of equated in Mahler's worldview. And so it seems that at this point in his life, 1895, 1896, he felt that love was the highest level of enlightenment that one could achieve, and this was almost a godly uh, endeavor to to have love. So before we get to the actual move, uh, music, I know that's a lot to digest, and let me tell you, this is there's a lot to digest in the symphony, but the main idea is this this kind of ladder of enlightenment that we climb over the course of this symphony, so we get to this culmination, this apotheosis in the last movement. Um, we should mention, though, one thing about the kind of general form of this symphony. As we've mentioned before, Mahler very famously was said that a symphony is like the world, it must contain everything. There's another quote from Mahler where he also said, in my opinion, Creating a symphony means to construct a world with all manner of techniques available. The constantly new and changing content determines its own form. And so clearly the content that Mahler had in mind for this particular symphony was that of a kind of cosmological uh, arrangement of, of movements and trying to describe the hierarchy of the universe in a, in a symphony. And so as a result, he, as he mentioned, he has six movements, unlike the standard four, and we'll find that the form of a lot of these movements departs from things that we're more standardly accustomed to, and this is much more of a free-composed piece, which makes it both really interesting to listen to and also challenging to break down, because it's, it's hard to pin down exactly. But we'll do our best here, and we're going to bring you all of the most important musical moments from this symphony, starting with the one movement that we're going to break down on, on this portion today, the first movement. So the first movement, titled Pan Awakens, Summer Marches In, is a picture of, as it, as it suggests, the god Pan, who's the god of many things, shepherds and flocks, rustic music. He's a companion of nymphs, a lot of things to do with with nature. Um, and this summer marches in uh, idea we'll, we'll talk about a little bit as we get into the piece. But, but really the, the goal of this first movement for Mahler, the second through sixth movements are these rungs of the ladder that we're going to climb, the ladder of enlightenment. But to get an understanding of the cosmological uh, organization of the universe, we have to first give a picture of um, the the creation, I guess, of the universe or the um, the cosmogonic idea of how did this all originate. And so that's what this first movement is really focused on, and, and it does so in a 
really unique, sometimes confusing, large-scale way. It's, it's a 35-minute movement, and so actually I'll try to give as many rough time stamps of what I'm talking about here so you can keep track if you listen to the movement. But we'll dive right in. Um, actually, before we dive right in, I want to mention one other thing, which is this, this, poem, uh, this poet, Siegfried Lippiner, who was a friend of Nietzsche, had a big influence on composers like Wagner, and also a friend of Mahler's as well. And Lippiner was, was obsessed with these cosmogonic ideas of the origin of, of the universe, and many of his poems dealt with this. And so, from one of his poems, uh, his Genesis poems, uh, comes a lot of the programmatic material of this first movement. It's, it's, it's a much more polytheistic um, creation world that we're in in this, uh, in this first movement here than, than maybe we would expect from the, from the second symphony. But you will certainly hear that in the music. But anyways, let's, let's dive right in. We begin, we hear the sort of awakening call. This, this movement, after all, is, is Pan Awakens, uh, played by a full section of, of eight French horn players. So we hear that opening horn call, and then what follows is a lot of kind of dark music. Some of it has a funeral march-esque character. I'll play a little bit of that music for you in a sec, but we really hear about a five-minute chunk of, of primarily dark music. And this music, it sounds like, and it really is meant to represent the raw materials of both the raw materials of, of music. It's very simple, elemental music, but also the raw materials of, of Earth. After all, this is kind of a creation story of sorts, and so we're getting this picture of uh, maybe Earth, maybe some, just some, some place that Pan is going to enter into, and all we're dealing with at the moment is nature, the, the raw materials, the rocks, the sand that's, that's sitting there. We'll listen to a little of this music just to get a taste of it. There will be a ton of this music in this first movement, and we'll skip over a lot of that, but I want to give you a quick taste of what some of this elemental music sounds like. So we hear here just a lot of kind of lifeless matter, it seems. And 
as I mentioned, we hear a lot of that music over the course of this movement. But then I want to point you to a couple important musical moments that we hear in a, a little later. So important that Mahler actually labeled them in the score with, with names. Here's the first one. We'll hear two things that he labeled with names in the score. First, we hear this motif that represents pan sleeping. You'll hear it, this kind of chorale in the woodwind instruments. And then we hear something he marked as the herald. This is, in theory, something meant to wake up Pan, incite this creation that he will bring to, to the natural world. So we'll hear in, in succession the Pan sleeping motif and the motif of the herald. So the herald there is played by the clarinet. We can, we can recognize those two ideas, I think. Then we get more, uh, we get a big trombone solo recitative in this kind of elemental music style. And we hear the pan sleeping motif again and the herald again. And this time somehow the herald has succeeded and he has woken pan up. This is about ten, nine, ten minutes into the movement. But after we hear this, then we finally get to some music that uh, is different from what we've heard up to this point. And this is, this music takes the form of a sort of march. And this march music will come back several times. People who want to put Mahler into more formal terms, this movement has been, people have suggested that this massive 35-minute movement is in fact in a sonata form, just like what we've been talking about with other movements. And if so, we just finished with the massive introduction and now we're finally hearing themes that will be developed and those themes come in the form of this march. And we will, in fact, hear this march again. It'll come back and get developed and then it will get recapitulated at the end. But regardless of whether this is, in fact, it's a very fluid type of form, so we're not going to worry too much about that. But this march music is very important. It signifies summer marching in, which is the subtitle of, of this movement. And summer can be interpreted maybe as, as pan or as the awakening of life after, if winter is kind of the lack of life and vitality, then summer brings in all of those things. And that's kind of a, a creation, a, a model of creation that exists in this kind of polytheistic world of Lippiner and, and Mahler. So we hear this march music, here's what how that sounds the first time we encounter it.
it's fun music to listen to. You might also be thinking to yourself, this is kind of almost trivial sounding. And I, I mentioned with this this title, the workshop title of Midsummer Night's Dream, the triviality that we'll hear throughout much of this piece is 100% intentional. Anytime Mahler writes music that sounds uh, superficial or trivial, it's it's very much intentional. And this is because we're, we're remember, at the lowest, lowest stages of enlightenment at this point. This is, all we're hearing is is the bare essentials at the moment. So we hear this march, and it eventually grows huge, this march, and uh, we come to a moment that is again labeled by Mahler as the entrance of summer. It finally has arrived, and let's hear that, and I'll let it play, because right after summer arrives, you'll, you'll recognize summer has arrived, and then we get one of our favorite things, a breakthrough moment. I think you'll hear it in this clip. And just like all of our other breakthrough moments, this is going to be important way, way down the line in this symphony. And it's just a little window that we get into what's to come. So we hear a breakthrough moment there towards the end, this kind of cataclysm that comes in the middle of that entrance of summer. It fades away, we hear more of that lifeless music, and then we come to, if we're in a sonata form, maybe the development. We hear that march music again, and I'll play that for you because, again, it will show he that now Mahler is taking the themes that we've been giving interweaving them, developing them, as one might do in, a, in the development section of a sonata. So you'll hear the, the sleep theme intermixed with this march theme. Let's listen to just a little bit of that passage as well. This is about 15 minutes into the movement. So we hear some more of that march music. We hear the entrance of summer music developed in, in this kind of almost song-like quality. Um, again, I'm 
brushing through a lot of this stuff because the form of this movement is so free and left up to so much interpretation. I think to pin it down to a exact, exact program is is not doing it justice, but I will give you the signposts, certainly. The section that we then arrive at is the most programmatic of this movement. This corresponds to events that happen in Lippiner's Genesis poem. First, we encounter something labeled by Mahler as the rabble. This is kind of, uh, well, let's listen and then you, you can interpret it as you will, the, the rabble music. So it sounds a little bit like a, a kind of disorderly throng of, of people. I, it's unclear what the, what the rabble here actually is, is doing, but one can think maybe it's, it's Pan amassing an army of some kind because what comes next is, is a battle scene. And uh, you hear that depicted very vividly as well. We hear just a little bit later a, a, a battle scene also marked by Mahler as, as the battle. We'll hear that music now as well. So after we hear a battle, I don't know exactly what this battle is over, maybe dominion over the earth or something, but then we, we get a storm. That's the last portion of this kind of programmatic section, and the storm again is very vivid. You hear thunder from the, the timpani and the swirling winds. Here's a little bit of the storm music as well. So the music really almost spins out of control in, in, that, in that stormy passage. Then it loses a little bit of steam, and we hear to close the battle again a, sol a, a snare drum by itself playing a kind of battle march rhythm as, as those soldiers are, are marching off away into the distance before we come to if we want to call it a sonata, the recapitulation, we hear once again at this point the horn call that 
opened the movement for us and we get much of the same music that we've already heard return. Let's hear that that vivid snare drum moment. This happens about 22 minutes into the movement. So then we end up recapitulating a lot of the music from earlier. Once again, we hear this, this music of the raw materials of lifeless matter. We hear the march once more, as we've expected it to, to return. And then, as the march builds for one last time, just to emphasize it to us that this is a really important thing, we get the same breakthrough moment once again before... Uh, the movement closes, and I'll play for you the, the the breakthrough moment as well as the close of the movement. It's a fantastic close to the movement, which Mahler said was a salute to Pan and all of the rabble, and we hear kind of, uh, again, a disorderly mob type of, of scene to close this, this uh, movement. It's a fantastic ending. What a what, yet another way from Mahler to get your adrenaline pumping a little bit. Let's hear this closing. Remember, another breakthrough towards the end. Listen for that. And then the climax of the movement, the salute to Pan and all the rabble. tell you one of the one of the endings I have not yet had a chance to conduct myself but that just seems so incredibly fun it's it's certainly fun to listen to it's this acrobatic exciting finish and that brings us to the end of of the first movement of this this 
tectonic, massive symphony. Um, this first movement, again, is... it All it does is set the stage, but it does so in... in in 35 plus minutes of music and it does so really interestingly sometimes perplexingly what are we to make of all of this music of kind of the bare essentials and the triviality of a lot of this march music but ponder that a little bit listen to it in in the lens of what's to come in terms of this hierarchy of enlightenment that we're going to try to ascend now and we will be back later in the day with our breakdown of, of the rest of this fantastic Third Symphony. So we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for joining us as always. <laughs>